Pulse Audio Podcast Network. History fun fact for everyone here. Beer making has historically been the domain of women. It used to be viewed as women's work. While we don't drink here on this podcast, we drink wine. We do like talking about little known facts or women from history that you probably haven't heard of. This is Whining About Herstory. I'm Kelly. I love you so goddamn much. I'm Emily. You you have been nailing these intros and I'm trying to get on board like when you say who you are and then I'm just in there like, and I'm Emily, but I'm always just like, oh my God, <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> But yeah, so we are a women's history podcast that talk about little-known women and drink wine while doing it. We- little women, big women, medium-sized women, women of all shapes and sizes yes. and, and colors and destinations. You are here. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Kelly, yes, you picked our wine today. I did. I figure we'll just like dive right into it. Yes, we all, we always said we should do our wine before we say their names because sometimes our say their names are not always happy. Yeah, it's a really hard to transition from uh, an emotional say their name into, and here's wine. Right, so we're like- going to do it. Here's wine, <laughs> and then here's this emotional story, and then here's more emotional stories. Yeah. Um. So today we're drinking the Biker from Four Vines, which is the winery. I like that. It reminds me of uh, Four Daughters. Right, that's what it made, made me of, too. It's a, a 2017 Zinfandel from Paso Robles, California. Um, it says, Smashed strawberries and blackberries make for a fruit jubilee on the nose of this fairly priced bottling, which also shows hints of fennel frond. It's much drier on the palate, where alpine strawberry flavors meet the subtle parsley and licorice. Oh, parsley and licorice. Right. That seems like a first. I don't think we've... That seems like a weird pairing. It does. Like, I'm I'm imagining, like, taking out a Twizzler, which I know is not real licorice. Everyone shut up. And, like, sprinkling parsley on it and then being like, this is for me. This is a great snack. Right? <laughs> well, I think of black licorice, which is more licorice than oh, more licorice. Black licorice is the worst. Delicious. It's awful. I hate it so much. Which is terrible because, like, as a little goth kid in high school, I would have loved to just be, like, snacking on black licorice and looking all, like... It's so so yummy. Pensive and, you know, demure and dark, but it's awful. So I'm, like, here eating the bright pink licorice. Like... (laughs) And the wine bottle has a girl on a bike. That's why I picked it. It's It's it's, like a vintage picture. Yeah. And it's so funny because when you broke this bottle out, I was like, oh, my God, I know that bottle because every time I see it at the liquor store, I'm like, is today the day I buy it? But I always think like, no, when I do a biker person, I, I know, should that's do what it. I always and then I didn't too. do it and when I, I covered like, We're drinking this wine. And then I, I covered a biker, uh, Bessie Stringfield, yep. and I didn't buy the wine because fuck me. All right. <laughs> right. All right. Well, what are we cheersing to? My husband reluctantly taking a cute photo of us. Yeah, he's kind of our say their name because so Kelly and I, due to quarantine, like you can't go out anywhere. There's no reason to get dressed up and go out. And so we decided we were going to like dress the fuck up to podcast today just to feel cute. Like I've got an outfit I've been wanting to try out. Kelly broke out this amazing like 50s sailor dress from the Betty Davis store. And she looks fucking stunning in it. And so we were like, Justin, will you take a picture? And he's like on the couch. We need 
He was yeah. under the blanket, you guys. That is how much See? he loves Kelly and supports our podcast because yes. empowered men empower women too. So cheers, cheers, Justin. And for picture taking. Yes. So go check that out on our Instagram and Facebook. He took and like Twitter. Ooh. I kind of get the licorice taste. It's got a little like I can there's taste almost the parsley. like a sting. I can taste the parsley. Maybe that's because I can really strongly mm. smell. Like the herbiness of, I guess I couldn't identify it as parsley if I hadn't read that it was parsley. Yeah. But when I, I get smell what you it, mean. it's really herby. Yeah, it's herby, fully loaded. <laughs> That's gonna be me after you know a couple yeah. glasses it's of this. Kind of an interesting aftertaste. I don't yeah. know if I like it. I I would I would like sip this. Like I'd curl up on the couch with you know some Netflix and in my bathrobe and drink this. I don't get the licorice. Well, that's okay, because I get the licorice, you get the parsley, and together we make, like, a half-competent wine drinker. There we go. We complete each other. <laughs> Kelly, Kelly just did the heart thing with her fingers, <laughs> but it was very unenthusiastic. <laughs> By the way, uh, I don't even remember what episode it was, but we were talking about tree vaginas. Mm -hmm. You know, when trees have those knots in them that look like female genitalia, and we were like, we should just sexy text each other pictures of vaginal trees when we're thinking about each other and I texted you one ages ago and so I randomly got a text today thinking of you and it was a picture of a tree gina and it was I told amazing. and I totally googled and downloaded that just to send it to you. Oh see I actually and, no, sent I took here's a picture the thing. of a real tree. I didn't <laughs> google like tree vagina or anything. I literally just google split tree and that was like the second image, and I was like, this is perfect. Oh, my God. I love it. Had that not worked, I would have Googled tree vagina and probably regretted it. And you know what? Here's the thing. You never knew the word for it, but everyone knows exactly what we're talking right. about. Everyone has seen those really erotic genital trees. Yes. <sighs> Genitals no, don't grow on trees. Or do they? <laughs> Tonight at 10. Yeah, right. <laughs> what you didn't know about tree genitalia. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to get started. Just dive on in. Starting us off. And uh, I'm going to start this off on a little bit of a somber note. Um, so get tree ginas out of your head. So I am covering uh, Michaela Almonaster, uh, who I call the Baroness of Badass because she's a bad bitch. Nice. Uh, but my story has a lot to do with abuse uh, and manipulation. And there is an um, there's you know some murdery shit that goes on so there there's emotional violence and physical violence um so just a quick trigger warning I, there were definitely times i was reading this i was like oh i know people who have pulled that shit or like in that vein um but i also wanted to use this opportunity to highlight the national domestic violence hotline uh you can call them at any time there are uh trained advocates and the number is 1-800-799-7233 you can also text love is l-o-v-e-i-s all one word to uh 22522 again there are trained advocates accessible 24 7 365 you can also visit their website at www.thehotline.org uh, there you can chat with a trained advocate 24 7 365 you can also find resources to identify types of abuse if you're like i don't know if this is abuse it doesn't feel right because i I remember going oh, through yeah. that learning experience and in retrospect realizing, oh, my God, I was being emotionally abused. Yep. That was emotionally abusive. 
it, there are also resources for friends and family of someone who you who is being abused or you suspect to be abused because mm-hmm. that can help you provide effective and healthy support. There are tons of resources there. Uh, you can find help for either leaving a situation or having a plan to make sure you're safe. You know, leaving yeah, is tell you places to go and a lot resources you know, are available to right. you. Uh, and a lot of shelters for women are very, very much like they won't tell anyone you're there. They make sure it's you're all safe. about the DL. We actually uh, when we were in college, we volunteered at a women's shelter. We were just helping yeah. them paint some rooms. But it was it was very covert. Like right. I would have had no idea had, you know, we not already know where we were, where we were going. But especially with people being under quarantine, there are a lot of people who are suffering abuse and it seems yeah, like there's like no way out. can't leave because it's quarantine, but people are still there for you. Yeah, there, there are a lot of resources. So please reach out. No one's going to be mad at you. No one's going to no. be like, it's actually not that big of a deal or, well, and if they are, you, you don't it's need your them fault. In your life. Yeah, like these are trained advocates who are here to help you in this situation. And even if you're not ready to leave a situation, they will help you to stay safe. I did not know they had a texting line. And I, I, awesome. I specifically looked up because I'm like a lot of a lot of hotlines have a text number. I do want to point out. So when you first land on the website, there's immediately a warning uh, because abusers can download software onto your computer to track your history or they can get into your computer and view your history. And so looking up a website like this isn't always a safe situation. So it and they can also do it to mobile phones. It's it's shady. It's fucking awful. Right. But if you feel safe, you can visit the website if you feel safe enough you can text them again that's love is all one word 22522 the phone number is 1-800-799-7233 the website is www.thehotline.org and also the uh the number for deaf or hard of hearing individuals is 1-800-787-3224 i almost didn't include that i'm like we're a purely like audio platform but i was like I don't understand enough about people who are deaf or hard of hearing. Why the fuck wouldn't I just include it? Just in case. I'll also include these resources in the description for our episode. uh, So you can also find them there. And I will read them again at the end of my story. But I just want to take the opportunity uh, to put those resources out there. Okay. So everyone listen very closely because I will only say this once. Michaela Leonarda Antonia Rojas de la Ronda Baroness de Pantal- Pantalba fuck I was this close was born on November 6th 1795 to Spanish nobleman Don Andreas Almonaster y Rojas and French aristocrat aristocrat yep. <laughs> oh my god I want to watch that movie now uh, and French aristocrat Luis Deñas de la Ronde. She was their first and only surviving child. And the whole surviving pit, bit, pit, I'm out of it already. I'm fucking this up. It's Rewind. Okay. The surviving bit will be a theme throughout our story, as you will soon see. 
Her parents' marriage was a great representation of the landscape of Louisiana at the time. So formerly owned by the French, uh, during this time, Louisiana was now owned by the Spanish. So the new Spanish settlers were moving in, but there was still a very well-established French majority in the colony. So it's kind of this like shifting of culture. So we've we've got like the old school French and then the Spanish are like, hey, rolling up like, hey, we here. You ready to party? Icky side note, Don Andreas uh, was in his late 60s when he married Louise, who was 30 years younger than him. Oh, oh, mine's worse. It does mean she was at least 30 years old. So, like, she wasn't a child, but, like... Mine's worse. (laughs) Is this going to be a theme, like disproportionate age gaps in, in their parents yep yeah and i mean this i i couldn't find anything that this was like a love match this was a very so this marriage was a really big deal it was signifying the joining of two extremely powerful wealthy and influential families so this was definitely like a business transaction oh, yeah. this was this was a political move Michaela's father died presumably because he was already old as shit and her mother Louise inherited his wealth she then got remarried to a 25 year old French consul Jean-Baptiste Castillon uh, and she was only seven years older than him but for some reason people flipped their shit I mean it was really uncommon back then for men to marry older women. It, it was and that's, very uncommon. It's totally a sexist thing because it was like an older woman marrying a younger right? man. Right, because it's like, oh, they can't, you know, they're getting old. They can't produce you an heir. They can't, you know. Yeah. They, what good are they they're to you now up. that they're older? Yeah. yeah. It kind of sounds like the age difference was exaggerated, like, at the time. I don't know how because, like, the when two people are adults, if you're 25 and then plus seven the physical differences aren't going to be that extreme uh but like there was a it just fuck man it was it was fucking crazy the ship flipping was so severe that it sparked a three-day sharivari which is like a raucous sarcastic fuck you parade that Sounds really fun. Yeah. So basically, people get together and they're banging pots and pans. I mean, and like, they music would suck if you're on the other possible, end of this. But it's kind of like fun. the sarcastic slow clap on an extreme scale. Like, bravo, Karen, way to go. Right. And during this, uh, effigies of Louise's new husband and her dead husband, who was in his coffin, uh, were paraded around. Wow. The the like, yeah I I think it would be fun to participate in something like that but not be on the receiving end. But it's basically like this whole city's getting together to get up into two people's personal business mm-hmm. and be like you shouldn't get married because she's seven years older yeah, no, and we're gonna true. have a three day fuck you parade. Like I just it's think like having, a having like a what? three day fuck you parade just sounds fun. In, I I can, on paper I can think of some things I'd like to have a three day fuck you parade for, but this is not one of them. List. Uh, the Sharivari only stopped when Louise donated $3,000 to the poor. So she basically like, paid them up. to go away. Because I guess the age difference doesn't matter if you're donating to the poor. And like, okay, I'm glad the poor people got the money. Right, but they're like, like oh, guys. I guess she's fine. It's fucking crazy. That doesn't actually really play into the rest of the story. But I was like, I can't not no, include like, the fuck you parade. <laughs> so coming from an aristocratic family, Michaela was afforded a good education provided by the nuns at Ursuline Convent, which I think is still in New Orleans. She was super into music. And at age 13, uh, 
had her own piano that she would play. She could also speak French, Spanish, and English. That makes sense. So she's trilingual. As tradition dictated, tradition, tradition, dun, 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 tradition. Can you tell I haven't listened to the Hamilton soundtrack? <laughs> it's not Hamilton. What it's a it? Fiddler on the Roof. There's a whole song. I was in Fiddler on the Roof. So <laughs> now I feel bad. I was like 10 at the time. You were giving me the most dead-eyed look. Like, like, stop the, whipping this no, Hamilton like, shit out on me. What the fuck is this shit? Yeah, there's a whole song where they're they're singing about their traditions of... Like marriage and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I remember. Anyway, Michaela's marriage was arranged for her when she was 15 years old and her 20... To her 20-year-old cousin... I mean, uh, the cousin part is gross, but the age difference is better. I was going to say it's only five years and she's younger, so everyone should be fucking fine with this. Who cares if she's 15, I guess? What? No, that's terrible. Anyway, so her cousin, uh, Joseph Xavier Celestine Defoe de Pontalba, uh, also known as Tintin, and he's commonly referred as Celestine, uh, but Tintin was like wasn't that wasn't that like a play or something tintin was a comic series it was like a us i think it was swedish or norwegian but it was like a comic book about this uh yeah, journalist tintin, tintin with his little white dog snowy yeah. i re- i remember uh borrowing those from the library and reading it them as a kid originally french it was okay french why did i think it was scandahoovian mm. was tintin scandahoovian he was it was drawn by a Belgian cartoonist. Okay. Which is who wrote super in the not pen Scandinavian. Name of which sounds super Scandinavian. I think I'm just making shit up. <laughs> Guys, it's 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 our podcast. I can say whatever I want. I can right. make things up because I have Kelly to Google for me. I do. But I'm like, I'm just gonna refer to him as Tintin because that's a really easy name and it's like kinda cute, even though he sucks yeah. ass. Anyway, this was a bummer because Michaela had fallen in love with a man of lower status. This love story, however, was not to be. And I couldn't find much more on that except like, oh, bummer, man. It's a whole bucket of bummer balls. <laughs> Tintin's family, who were living in France, wrote to Michaela's mother to propose the marriage, describing it as a, quote, business merger that would transfer the Almonaster wealth into their hands. Because remember, Louise has all of her husband's cash, mm-hmm. and he had a fuck ton of cash, right. and now it's like all hers. And they're like... and. She's related to them, so it's like kind of okay. These keeping two, it within the family, these two almost. parts of the family are now going to control this immense wealth. So romantic, guys. That's what it was back about back then. You know, if if I don't get to propose to with like a long, dry legal document, I will be very disappointed. Tintin rolled up to Louisiana. (laughs) He lights a candle and then just gets down on one knee and hands me 20 pages of legal documents with with like the little sticky note arrows like sign here, initial here. (laughs) That would be really funny. So Tintin rolled up to Louisiana with his mother and within three weeks on October 23rd, 1811, he and Michaela were married at St. Louis Cathedral, which again, I believe is still there. New Orleans is such a historic city, and they've got so many incredible, amazing old buildings I want to see and ghost tours I want to go on. That sounds fun. This marriage was an even bigger deal than Louise's uh, to Michaela's father, the one who was three years older than him, not the one people who flipped their shit because she was seven years older. Thankfully for Michaela, people approved of this match. 
So there was no fuck you parade. Much of the displeasure of people who were ready to like bang pots and pans and get all up in people's business. Hmm. After the wedding, Michaela and her mother accompanied Tintin and his mother back to France, as Michaela was now a French citizen through marriage, and they moved in with Tintin's family. It's okay. Have you seen that thing that's been going around Twitter where it's like, name something that's classy if you're rich, but like... uh seen as low class if you're yeah. poor and I immediately thought like getting married and like moving in with your your partner's family yeah. if you're rich while well, you're moving into the estate if you're poor well you can't afford your own place classism guys it's crazy so Tintin's family lived in a medieval chateau 50 miles outside of Paris complete with its own fucking moat I want to be the realtor that's showing that place off. And then there's a moat that you can fill with alligators or sharks or whatever kind of critters you like. It's very versatile. You can use it to keep people in, keep people out. You can go swimming, you know, put a garden by it, make it a, it's a lovely water some feature. Alligators in it. Yeah, that's you know, as one does. Louise, as one <laughs> does. Louise, uh, the mother, left the chateau and moved to Paris to live it up. Like, she's like, I got my money, my daughter's married off, we good, I do me. So she left Michaela in the chateau. Now to our modern sensibilities, Michaela's life kind of sucks. You know, like being arranged marriage to your cousin. You know, it doesn't seem like she has a lot of autonomy right now. But her life is going pretty well for the time. She's rich, in a powerful marriage, and living in a goddamn castle with a moat. Michaela was even, quote unquote, doing her job as a wife and pumping out kids. She would eventually have four children. She made a room in the Chateau to stage plays, which were attended by friends uh, from Paris. And this, like, kept her busy artistic mind occupied in the countryside. Because she's used to living in the hustle and bustle of New Orleans. And now she's kind of living, I don't want to say in the middle of nowhere. But but kind of. Not connected to everything else. However... There was a darkness that hung over the chateau, and his name was Baron Joseph Delfau de Pontalba, Michaela's father-in-law. Actually, I think his name was Joseph. I think I just put yo because I felt fancy. No, you're fine. I'm just going to call him the Baron. Yeah, that's good. The Baron was a former officer in the French and Spanish armies and was, let's just say, a greedy, creepy bastard. One example of his creepy controlling behavior comes from a letter he wrote to his own son, Tintin. This was during a period of separation. Uh, So the Baron writes this letter to Tintin saying, Are you not sorry not to have your dear papa put his arms around your neck and squeeze you tighter and tighter? And it's this kind of covert thing because it sounds like it's a hug, but he's talking about choking his son. Yeah, that's creepy. I, I, I don't want anyone to be like, well, it was the way they wrote. No, he's talking about choking his son. And then during a period where he was separated from his wife, he demanded that she write to him every single day and that she detail every move and interaction. So to put this in our modern sensibilities, this would be someone demanding you text them them every five minutes. I'm here. I'm in the car. I'm driving here. I'm going to be here for this long. I'm with these people. And, And constantly. That's terrible. Yeah. And like basically she's having to write a diary to her husband so he knows that she's not like doing something he wouldn't approve of or hanging out with like 
being around other men or he's very I mean, controlling. That would be a lot easier to forage. I know. But, I know. But which like, almost makes it worse. But the thing is, it probably doesn't matter what she was or was not doing or even what she wrote because he was probably super suspicious yeah, and like accusing probably, her he of shit all the time. Yeah. yeah. Now, the Baron set his sights on Michaela. See, Michaela's mother, Louise, was a very shrewd woman and tried to make sure her own interests were protected. In the marriage contract, section 12, paragraph 3, I made that up, dictated that the Baron's family would only receive a quarter of the Almonaster fortune, represented as like $40,000 in cash and jewelry, which served as Michaela's dowry. Dowry, So like in this deal, you immediately get $40,000 with my daughter as part of her dowry. The remaining three-fourths of this would be controlled by Louise herself with plans to grow it. So she's in Paris wheeling and dealing, buying property, making investments to grow the fortune. She's the elder. Like, why... why, It's her fucking Why wouldn't it go to her until she dies? Exactly. She's the one whose ancient husband died. And left all the money, yeah. Louise also wrote Michaela's will in such a way as to protect the fortune from the Baron and the rest of the Pantalba family. So she she's looking out for her daughter in a way, but also protecting her own interests. I like that she wrote Michaela's will. Like, you're young, you're getting married. I'm going to write a will that makes sure these assholes that we're related to, but they're still assholes. Don't get your money. It's so much money. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out if it was $40,000 in today's money or back then. Either way, that's a lot. And I kind of want to lean towards back then because I'm like, I mean, $40,000 is a ton of money, but it's not like mind blowing, no, like, you know, you know. I, I, I feel like in today's standards. So I'm, I'm assuming it's back then money, which is probably like $20 billion, even though $40,000 was an unfathomable 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 amount of money at that time. The Baron wanted it all. And he wanted it now. Now, anyone who is familiar with controlling abusive bastards knows that one of their tactics is to isolate their victims from friends and family. And that is exactly what the Baron did, abusing Michaela over a number of years. And he he like said, you can't leave. Yeah. Or people would come to see her like, you can't come in. She's not here. So he's cutting her off yeah, from the outside world. And she is trapped. Ab- mental ab- abuse technique is take the person away from everyone they know. So really quick. So if, all they have is you. If your partner is throwing fits or making you feel guilty when you want to leave the home and, and then spend time goes, with other hey, people. hey, we're going to go move to a city where you know no one far away from your family for no apparent reason. Red flag. Don't go with them. Yeah. And it, and it starts out light because you know, it's one thing what if they're do- like, oh, hey, we, we're getting jobs and like right. the rest of your relationship is fine. But if you're already iffy and then they're trying to take you away from everyone you know and love, don't go with them. And something that they'll do, too, is they'll make it seem playful. Like you'll you'll be like getting ready to go like, oh, I'm, I'm just really going to miss you. You know, like I just love you so much. And it starts out kind of like that. And then it progressively it gets more yep. aggressive. So red flags. Definitely going to be talking about red flags throughout this story. All of the red flags. So many red flags. So basically, he's doing this. He's emotionally and mentally abusing her. And he finally browbeats her after a number of years into signing over her power of attorney to her husband, Tintin, giving him... And more so, really, the Baron control over her wealth. Tintin's probably just like, well, yeah, whatever you want, Dad. Yeah, Tintin is a... 
we don't know a ton about his relationship with Michaela, but he definitely was not there for her, and he was active in the abuse and complicit to the abuse. I didn't realize he was active. I was well. I mean, even if he wasn't, he's still letting it happen. He he didn't he didn't stop it. He's still complicit. Yeah. So Tintin does not come off well in this story, and he's basically a pawn of his father. Yeah, Tintin, not the journalist Tintin with the dog Snowy. This Tintin specifically. I love the other Tintin. So I actually have a section right here. What of Tintin? Didn't he stick up for his wife against his father who said he wanted to straight up strangle him? No, he was spineless. Quick disclaimer. Tintin's dad is clearly an abusive, manipulative creep, and it couldn't have been easy growing up in that environment. Yeah, I have a lot. Probably abused. His I life. have a lot of sympathy for him and those who grow up in abusive homes. That being said, Tintin is a bitch in this story, and he does nothing to help Michaela really. And also, we are all responsible for our choices. You know, if you come from an abused home and you grow up to be an abuser, you are responsible for the abuse you commit and you're responsible for trying to change your behavior. Right. Like. No, I fully agree. It's like when we we uh, hear these stories about serial killers and you right. hear their absolutely tragic childhoods. It's like, yeah, but they still killed a bunch of people and they're responsible for that. Right, Those are matter. choices they made. We right. can understand where the it came from. The cycle thing. But fuck them. Right. So sorry. Fuck Tintin. In fact, one of the reasons Michaela signed over power of attorney to the Baron may have been an attempt to save her marriage and ease up on the emotional abuse. According to documents from the time, it seems like Michaela uh, was basically bargaining with the devil. She was trying to escape the chateau with her husband and now four children. In exchange for their freedom, she signed away her rights. So she had been beaten enough where she's like, just as if I can just, just get out of go. here. I'll, whatever. I don't even fucking care anymore, which I totally relate to. Especially when you have kids. She's probably like, I need to get my kids out of this situation. And she's, she's just trying to salvage her life, you know? Michaela's attempts to keep her family together failed. Initially, she had convinced Tintin to set them up in a home in Paris close to her mother. I also read that Tintin abandoned her and he gave her like 600 bucks a month, uh, sure. which, which like was nothing compared to what she was used to living off of so like it she's not doing great and she's also got four fucking kids to deal she with. Just didn't go back to her mom well she's also married and she's trying to make this yeah. work and there's a lot of implications to leaving your husband um and i'm not sure what the conversion rate was at the time like for you know francs and dollars but six hundred dollars at the time was around eleven thousand today's money that's bonkers to me but remember she's rich as hell and right. now she's and yeah i i had a moment where i was like bitch i kind of don't feel super bad for the financial situation but because six hundred dollars a month so eleven thousand dollars a month yeah but yeah like when you're accustomed to anything you want to drop actually cat, yeah and when you have four children to look after I mean, like that's still a lot of that's, money but yeah you're yeah. you're not destitute but you're not like as well off as Gray, you were. especially since she's she's used to like she rolled up with forty thousand fucking dollars. And, yeah. And you know, probably servants and Yeah. When Michaela's mother died in 1825, uh, Michaela inherited all of her mother's estates, including properties in Paris and New Orleans. Cause like I said, Louise was hustling in Paris. I kind of want to know more about her because she sounds like a shrewd badass. Right. 
Uh, naturally, the Pantalba family demanded that Michaela sign over the New Orleans properties in exchange for her keeping the Paris ones, which makes no goddamn sense. So that's like, hey, I know you own all of this stuff already and you have every right to it. But if you give me half, I will allow you to keep half of what you already own. I would do the opposite. I'd be like, can I have the New Orleans property and you can have Paris and I'm just going to leave? Right? Uh it, and it's just an abuse thing. Oh, yeah, I mean, th- this terrible. shit doesn't actually have to make sense. It's not supposed to. So this is the part where I'm a survivor begins playing and there's a montage of Michaela getting shit done. Good. Michaela was not one to roll over and die. She took matters into her own hands and moved back to New Orleans, claimed her property and began Good. making her own money, bumping up her income to $40,000 a year. On her uh, on her way back, she was also a guest of President Andrew Jackson in Fuck the White yeah. House. And I just want to remind everyone, Michaela is a big deal. Like she comes from a very powerful family. She's this really prominent socialite. Like, well, right. And she's she, got a she lot was kind of, of power foreign because they were from New Orleans, but she had been living in France, in France her whole life. Yeah, and I basically. think I think some of her family were like buddies with Andrew Jackson, and like. I'm not a fan Still. of Andrew Jackson and how he like decimated indigenous peoples and was a, a racist piece of he shit. Made a lot of bad choices. But this is just a testament to how big of a deal she is. Right. Not everyone can meet a president even back then. Right. Then she threatened to divorce Tintin under Louisiana law, which was a lot more forgiving than French divorce laws at the time. So like this was ideal. Right. The Baron and the rest of the Pantalba family were not having it. They did what a totally normal family would do in this situation and hired fucking spies to follow Michaela around to try and find evidence of an infidelity. Like they were trying to get dirt on her. They also trying to make it seem like, hey, she's cheating. Yeah. So fuck you. We have this over you. Yeah, exactly. That's terrible. Like you're probably violating the marriage contract and then they have, you know, the right to everything. I don't know. It was just probably not a good thing. They also uh, cut the already small income she was receiving from the family, though it seems like she was doing fine on her own. So I'm not really sure how much that factored into what she was making a year. I mean, I'm sure it was, you know, they were trying to make her situation worse and she's like, fuck you, I'm doing fine. Yeah. And even if it didn't like hurt her financially that much, it was a fuck you. You know, they're just trying to they're trying to screw her. And that would that would mentally Mentally, mess with me. And more importantly, they were able to use their influence to get the French courts to order Michaela back to France. But I don't is know. Is she even a French citizen? She is. Oh, because she was Be- born in France. No, because she married Tintin oh. so and became both? a French citizen. Is she both then? I don't know if she retained her uh, American. Yeah, I, don't, I don't. Back then, I don't know. Citizenship. But she did become a French citizen when she yeah. married Tintin. So she is. Um, she a does French fall citizen. under their. Yeah their laws and stuff honestly and she she's a big deal so i don't think she could have just like disappeared although maybe well, no, she but i'm like money is there know. a way she could have like used the i was just trying to think like if she could have used like the u.s government you know be like you know she's lived here for this amount of time she was born here she's also our citizen and we're keeping her right and i i'm i'm gonna give her the benefit of the doubt that basically they overpowered her right? because well, she see, did no, return she to france no or if, if there was a way, to. she probably didn't know. Yeah. 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 Or they maybe they threatened the kids. You know, like, they and never I'm, know. Because I don't want to give the impression that Michaela's just like, oh, no. Oh, okay, whatever. Like, 
this is she's being manipulated she's being oh, yeah. abused in this situation like this isn't her fault mm. i'm not trying to make it seem that way I'm oh sorry, no no no, no. We're, we're just trying to figure out like how <laughs> like how do you get a, a country's government to order like, i don't know because you're pissed right but and these people are very powerful and you have influence yeah upon returning to france and the chateau the baron upped his torture all of the servants in the house were strictly forbidden to give Michaela this. Whoa, I I wrote half of a sentence and then changed my mind. Nice. Uh, all of the servants in the house had strict orders to give Michaela the silent treatment. They were not strictly forbidden from giving her the silent treatment, which is what I actually have written. Fuck me. They were not to speak to her, look at her touch her or even acknowledge her existence she was a ghost and this was especially a problem because most like clothing at that time required assistance to put on like like especially when you're in the higher ups unless you're like putting on your you know like peasant gear getting dressed is a fucking event you need other people there's so many layers there's bodices there's corsets there's There's, bird cages there's it's it's crazy corsets alone usually required at least one other person see and here's the way you put on a corset you get it on you get someone behind you pulling the strings they put their foot on your back and they use you as leverage to pull back (laughs) right exactly oh god now, All granted, I think of is the one scene from Titanic when the mother is like berating her and like tightening her corset at the same time. And she's like, oh, that's right. And doesn't she like pass out from that? No, that's parts of the Caribbean. Because that's the scene I'm thinking of where they're tightening yeah. her corset. I'm like, that's Kira Knightley. She is already such a thin woman. <laughs> like, uh. Now, granted... Getting dressed was probably not a big problem for Michaela because she wasn't going out much as she was kept captive in her own room. So she can't even move around the chateau. She can't even like go walk the grounds. Her world is so small. I hate that so much. Basically, Michaela was witnessing her own life being erased in front of her eyes. She was becoming a living ghost. Because if you're stuck in that room, you don't get to see your kids. Right. You know, you don't. Oh, that's terrible. And no one will acknowledge you. No one will look at you. No one will, like, help you. It's awful. But Michaela is nothing if not a survivor. As the Baron continued his emotional and mental torture, she stealthily collected evidence of what they were doing so that she could have a legal case against them. This is something else I want to point out. If you're in a situation where uh, someone is abusing you or harassing you, document everything, save everything. Don't delete text messages. Keep phone records. Mm -hmm. Write write events down and like dates and everything right, like because keep, keep a very detailed diary because uh so many of these situations kind of turn out to be these weird he said she says especially if there's not physical abuse and physical yep. markings of abuse uh so but if you have this documented yep. it lends a lot of weight to what you're saying and this isn't even in just like husband wife situations or boyfriend and girlfriend like the same goes if you're being harassed or mentally abused at work yes. or any place. If you ever feel that way, start recording these instances right? Because they will help down. you. Absolutely. One way she did this uh, was by baiting them. So she would sit at the head of the table, which would then cause the Pantalbas to object and admit she wasn't the head of the house. So they're denying her status, which shows mistreatment. Because I read that. I was like... 
and that's probably because she's like, the richest and so yeah she's probably she probably i wonder if she has a slightly higher standing than them which should make her head of the house or something exactly and i it was a big deal not to respect someone's status at the time so yeah. they're so <laughs> Uh, Michaela brought the family to court to try and divorce Tintin multiple times, but the French marriage laws were incredibly strict and favored the husband significantly. Sexism for the win. And I know there are a lot of places nowadays that, especially when it comes to custody, favor women. Right. I don't agree with that either. I'm not saying they should favor the women. I'm saying we should should figure out who's less of an asshole. It should be fair and even. Yeah. Or even if it's just like, hey, this marriage isn't working, like, okay, well, you know, figure this out so the kids don't become pawns in some twisted chess match. Uh, so she lost every time because of this. That's this sad. cost her not only emotionally, but she also had to pay for her abuser's legal fees every fucking time. Well, and I'm sure she's not making money anymore because she had to leave New Orleans and she's right. stuck in the chateau. Right. So she's having to chip away at whatever fortune she's built up for herself. Despite all of this, Michaela refused to sign over her properties to the Baron and his family. So so her husband has power of attorney, but I think when she inherited this new stuff, it became just hers. I'm not super sure how that worked, but basically they wanted her to sign over these properties and she would not do it. Nice. I think she I think she kind of realized that signing over the power of attorney was a mistake in the first place because it didn't stop it. You know, you think like if I just do this one thing, they'll stop. They'll be happy. That's not how it works. They will never stop. After four years of Michaela's unbelievable endurance, the Baron had had enough. If he couldn't break her spirit, he would break her body. Quick trigger warning for horrible physical violence if you're not into this maybe skip ahead 30 seconds to a minute okay i'll be back later <laughs> kelly's just gonna walk out of the room like no, get get me when you're done yeah, right Clink just, the you glasses tell, you tell you're your done. stories and i'll be back on october 19th 1834 the baron stormed into michaela's room wielding a pair of dueling pistols he shot her Four times in the chest at point blank range. Holy shit. Allegedly, after the first shot, Michaela screamed, don't, I will give you everything, to which the Baron replied, no, you are going to die, which is a chilling thing to hear. Michaela suffered a defensive wound in her hand as she tried to grab the guns and like, so she's grabbing at it and he fires and it wrecks her hand. Well, the Uh, bullet probably just went straight through and still hit her. Exactly. Along with wounds in her chest. Like, this shit hit her right in the chest. uh, She tried to escape and found a maid who had come to investigate the suspicious gunshots. Like, what the fuck is going on? And good for that maid, because if I hear gunshots, I'm like, nope. (laughs) I don't know if I want to run towards the gunshots. With the Baron in pursuit, the maid dragged Michaela into another room where Michaela was begging for help. The Baron found them in the room and stood over Michaela's bloody body. I assume he was confident he had killed her as he fired no more shots and retired to his study to draw up his own will before completing suicide with the same pistols he had used to attack Michaela. So he killed himself and probably just left all of it to his wife and son. Well, actually, he left most of... (laughs) I didn't include this, but I read it. He left most of his fortune to this military school for boys and actually, in his will, demanded that the boys who attend the school be kept there for 10 years and not allowed to leave while they're attending. And I'm like, so this guy just wants to trap 
everyone. <laughs> like, well, and I just find it interesting that he finally got what he wanted and then killed himself. He didn't get what he wanted, though. She never signed over uh, the properties. And yeah, I, but, I think what this, this was yeah, is he see, just I'm wondering, like, flipped his shit. Because his mom, you know, her mom wrote her will, but her mom's now dead. So where would the fortune go? Because you think. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. If he thinks she's then. dead. Yeah. I, yeah. See, and I don't know. And I don't think that this was calculated. Oh, no. I think he was just pissed. Yeah. And he and he lashed out violently in like the worst way, you know, and and then he would and then he was like, I'm fucking done. Like, like she kind of broke him. He was just like, I can't come back from this. Yeah. Like she kind of broke him. And I'm not saying that she caused him to shoot her, but he he just he flipped his shit and then was like, I'm done. Right. Like somehow Michaela survived this brutal attack. Yeah. But her recovery was long oh, and sure. agonizing. So she like when you're shot in the chest. Here's the crazy. So these are dueling pistols. So my first thought was like, maybe they're not as strong. But I was like, no, people died in duels all the time. Alexander Hamilton got hit once and fucking died. <laughs> like yeah. She gets shot four times in the chest. I, at, I don't. I'm so thrilled that she survived. But it blows my mind. I'm like. Louise came down from heaven and was like, bitch, not my daughter. She was all Molly Weasley. It was like, stay away from my daughter, oh, you yeah. bitch. <laughs> Ugh. So the intense pain from her wounds made her unable to sleep. She experienced epileptic... Epilep- oh, my fucking God. <laughs> epileptic seizures on a daily basis. Uh, she lost at least one of her fingers from the shot that had gone through her hand and one of her lungs had collapsed uh, so severely that she never fully recovered from it to the point where she would lose her breath after trying to climb stairs. Mm-hmm. So she was, I, I would say she was permanent. She was permanently disabled from this. Mm-hmm. She was still, as we'll see, she was still able to like live her life and get it done. But this wasn't like she got out on No, yeah, obviously. Exactly. This I mean, that fucked her up for probably the rest of her life. Still, I I can't imagine the, like, trauma oh, she yeah. was experienced if she didn't have PTSD. Like, I didn't read anything about it, but I was like, well, they didn't really know about PTSD back then. She def probably had oh, it. Oh, yeah. She probably, like, freaked out any, any I bet she had anyone, nightmares. Like, came unannounced, like, came, like, came bursting into a room. Oh, I'm, my God. I panic. I, I don't have PTSD. And if someone bursts into a room, I freak out. And I haven't had the experience of someone doing that and then trying to murder me. Exactly. Now, during her recovery, the the uh, the Baron's wife, the Baroness, again, was like, she's a ghost, silent treatment, wouldn't look at her, wouldn't touch her, nothing. And I'm like, you kind of owe her because you've been emotionally... It, it, I, I kind of pin a lot of this on the Baron because he was masterminding it, but the right. whole family was in on this and complicit. Right, you'd think, I'm okay, like, you, you owe know, her, bitch. <laughs> he's dead, you know, they could band together now that he's dead. But I... I abuse is so complicated i think if anything the wife was just like this is my life and this is normal and had to lean into it maybe survive again feel kind of bad for her because she's clearly in a bad situation but also you're responsible and like for your decisions and exactly your husband tried to murder this girl and you're just being like yeah your fault you fucking bitch like no (laughs) no so but during her recovery tintin cared for her he was the only person wow. that like stepped up and helped take care of her that's surprising Michaela said that Tintin only quote behaved towards me as he should so basically 
he's not doing anything special. This isn't really love. He's just behaving how you should treat any other human being. Right. He's showing her the most basic level of humanity. So like, yay, Tintin, but also Fuck this you, doesn't Tintin. make up for anything. Yeah. You're acting like a human being. Because of the Baron's death, Tintin became the new Baron of uh, Pontalba, and Michaela inherited the title of Baroness of Pontalba, or as I like to call her, the Baroness of Badass. Yeah. Because goddamn. After three weeks of recovering, Michaela picked up where she left off. Again, I'm like, only three weeks? You got shot in the chest four fucking times. Uh, So she picks up where she leaves off. She moves to Paris and again starts trying to divorce her husband because, like, she needs to get out of this fucking family. It wasn't just the Baron, like I said. Now, somehow, people still didn't quite realize that Michaela was a victim in all of this because court still ruled against her and she even lost friends over what was described as a scandal. She got shot, you guys. Like, right? I don't understand how everyone's not like, yeah, whatever she did, she didn't deserve to get shot in the chest. Like, that's insane. After one court victory, Tintin pulled a very classy move and rubbed it in Michaela's face by printing out court proceedings in a newsletter, especially like highlighting the parts that were super shitty to her or where she was shamed. Wow. And he distributed them all over the city. Like anyone he could get into their hands. He's like, hey, look how much of a fucking bitch my like, wife is. This is this in France or yes. in New Orleans? This is in France. So she's I in she France. She was in New Orleans. I thought you said she went back to New Orleans. She went to, no, she moved back. So after she recovered, yep. she moved to Paris. Oh. Because she was okay. in the chateau, which I was like 50 like miles out of Paris. That. There's a lot of moving parts to this story. Yeah. I tried to keep so it yeah, as he was just like distributing around, like, hey, look my wife sucks yeah so it's the equivalent of like writing on twitter or facebook like haha my wife tried to divorce me and couldn't she's a fucking bitch look at all these times where she was made to feel like shit again tintin is a fucking bitch right fuck him so like i said he's com- he's not only complicit but he's an active participant in the abuse but Michaela used this to her advantage because she's a goddamn queen. Fuck yeah. Apparently, wanting to divorce your husband because he's shitty and his dad literally tried to murder you isn't a good enough reason for the courts to grant you a divorce. However, divorcing him because he openly ridiculed you is totally legit because this was seen as a violation of his husbandly duties. Uh, ha, ha, so he screwed himself over. Yeah, it was amazing. Fuck Michaela you, was granted a legal separation, which isn't like a full on divorce, but she can legally tell him to fuck off and die. At 40 years old, 40. After 25 years of abuse, manipulation, and an attempted murder, you know, as the fucking Just cherry to throw on it top. On in there, yeah. Michaela was free. Oh, that's such a like that's such a good statement to hear. Of her survival, Michaela said, quote, I can now say that I have gone through my purgatory while still on this earth. I thought purgatory was the neutral place. Like, this is all, this is hell. Lady, you were in hell. hell. (laughs) Having dropped her heavy chains, Michaela was now free to soar and soar she did. Here's the part where every day I'm hustling, hustling starts playing, and there's a montage of Michaela getting it done. This is a movie. 
this is a movie, but it's going to be the most depressing movie. I almost said series because there's a lot, but I was like, no one is going to tune in every week to watch, to be subjected to this crap. Nope. So I'm going to listen list her accomplishments as bullet points because we need some positive bullets in this episode. She built the Hotel de Pontalba in Paris, which is now a historic landmark and the official residence of the United States Ambassador to France. So still be u- being used by like hoity-toity people. Yeah, that's awesome. And then part of me wondered because wasn't Julia Child's husband the United States Ambassador to France? I feel like so. I feel like it. I'm kind of maybe drawing conclusions that are unfounded, but Julia Child probably lived there. Or Julia Childs. I knew it. Is meant. it Childs or Child? Julia Childs. Child? I think it's Childs. Julia, <laughs> the cook, the, the famous chef, Probs definitely lived there. Is it Child? Child? Okay. I'm glad we were able to figure that out because there are people yelling at us right now. We heard you. We figured it out. So yeah, Julia Child, Probs def lived there. In New Orleans, she built what are called Pantalba buildings because she she just built them all, uh, which are still highly recognizable in the French Quarter. These buildings were marked with her own crest that she created and bo- that bore an ornate A and P for El Monaster and Pantalba. So that was her like maiden name, her father's name, and now her new name. So it was kind of that like. I don't know, it was like this meshing of worlds and identities. And I, yep. at first I was like, why would you want to use Pontalba? Because it sounds like, I mean, they were shitty. But I think she's like, no, it's my name now. So these Pontalba buildings can still be found all over the French Quarter. And so I'm going to show you a picture really quick of a very recognizable uh, red brick building in the that's that's commonly pictured when you think of the French Quarter. It's got all the ferns oh, yeah. on it. Yep. I always like recognize it as the fern and, building. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is one of the Pantalba buildings. Oh, cool. I'm like, I've seen the I've seen a pic- pictures of this building all, all over, over the place. I had no idea of the history or the woman behind no, it. And, not like, at her all. That's story. awesome though. Also, these buildings are definitely haunted. I literally Googled Pantalba buildings hauntings, and the one I just showed you is 100% fucking haunted. They're like, yeah, you don't even need to ask this question. Yeah, everything in are. New Orleans is haunted, guys. Just d- like don't even ask. Just ask which ghosts are there or why it's haunted. Uh, because Michaela was such a shrewd businesswoman, she became the head of all of family affairs. This included helping her children oh, financially, writing and reviewing the marriage contracts of all of her children. Gee, I wonder why she was so particular on this. Like, she was considered a beast because she would go through line by line. Like, she was very eagle-eyed with it. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let her tell you some stories. Oh, my God. Like, taking after well, her mom, Well, and I'm sure her, par- her kids were probably just like, yeah, mom, that's fine. Yep. I, I couldn't find a ton about her children. I couldn't even find like if they were traveling with her or all that. But she had four children that she was so she was like a mother to four during all this, too. And I especially in situations of abuse, children are constantly used as pawns and to manipulate you. And so mm-hmm. I can I'm a, I'm 100 percent certain that was also going on. Oh, yeah. Uh, and she also conducted like her own business deal- dealings and she became a real estate magnate. Like like Hell I said, yeah. she was buying property. She was building, building properties. Shit, yeah. uh, she also became the wealthiest woman in New Orleans at the time. Shit. So she's making it rain. And then my last bullet point is and more because I definitely condense this because this story is already long. Now, Michaela is straight up slaying it. 
But her former husband, Tintin, was, you know, on that slow, fun slide into senility and poverty. And I don't know about you, but I think I'd look at him and just be like, yeah, fuck you, dude. But Michaela is a better person than I am. She actually helped look look after him in his later years, paying his servants, like, to keep up around his, you know, home or whatever, making sure he ate, and offering just, like, general support. I don't think she was, like, doting on him, but she just made sure he was okay. To make sure he just didn't die randomly. Right. And I think back on how Tintin cared for Michaela, and after after she was shot, and how she said he treated her the way... He should. should, And that's just what she was doing. I think that's exactly what this was. She's like, this is how human beings treat each other. Theoretically, like if he was in France and she's in New Orleans, yeah, she's just having other people care for him. Yeah. And I I couldn't. There's not a ton on their obviously very complicated relationship. So we don't know a ton about it. Uh, But yeah, you know, she could have so easily just been like, Fuck off and die, dude. Right. Hate you. Like There's a lot but, of people that would have. So I I definitely would have. I probably would have, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so like she's a she's a really good person. And really quick disclaimer, you are in no way obligated no. to interact or forgive or care for your abuser at any point in time. I'm just point this is just how she decided I know I to haven't. do it. I'd probably like punch him in the face if I ever saw him again. Oh yeah. I would punch him in the face too. Like, there would be just two fists coming at him right. at the same time. You'd see me make the face of, oh, shit, and then just... I'd be like, is that him? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even get to punch him because I would just run up screaming. He'd be like, fuck. Yeah, like, he has no away. idea what's going on. Okay. There's just an angry short lady who's It'd like... Be even <laughs> better if, like, he didn't see me. And then all of a sudden, you're just, like, running at him. Bastard! <laughs> oh, that's, that's uh. a good dream. I'm going to hold on to <laughs> Uh, on April 20th, 1874, Michaela Almonaster, Baroness de Pontalba, died peacefully at 79 years old in Paris. Wow. So she, at some point, I think she was going back and forth. Probably. She was all over the place. Michaela had established herself as a respected and intimidating figure in both Paris and New Orleans because she wasn't just wealthy and she was legit getting shit done. She was very shrewd. She was a very good businesswoman like she was smart as hell and you didn't want to cross her you didn't want to like try to screw her right (laughs) she all of her fucks were used up very early on like she's drawn from an empty bucket and she pulls she pulls out her hand she's like oh i have no more fucks to give the hand turns into a fist and she wrecks you so yeah Michaela's story of survival is truly incredible, but despite the dramatic nature of it, it's all too relatable. We talked so much throughout the story about recognizing these different tactics that abusers use. And like right. I as like I said, as I was reading this, I'm like, oh, like not to this extreme or this specific situation. I'm like, no, I've had people pull that shit on me. Right. I've been in a situation like that. So again, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. You can also visit their site at www.thehotline.org. You can text at you can text the love is all one word to 22522. The number is 22522. I because I keep saying 2 and then the number yep. 2, so I want to be very clear. Um their uh line for deaf and hard of hearing people is 1-800 787-3224. There are people to help you. There are resources. There is a way out. And 
we're here for you. We see you and we love you. Yep, we do. It can get better. And that's my story of Michaela Almonaster, the Baroness of Badass. All right. So now it's my turn. Woohoo. Yay. I is is your story? I I my story's I would say mostly neutral with a little bit of high. I was going to say I tried to keep my story more like empowering like this woman survived all this shit but there were so many times in it I was like god this sucks <laughs> yeah no mine's not that bad okay awesome okay so I'm covering Bertha Von Suttner I like that name. name Bertha Von Suttner right so it's she, pronounceable <laughs> it is she was born on June 9th 1843 in the Kinski Palace in Prague so there's a lot of German in this Ooh. Story. even though in Prague they speak Czech I googled that. Oh. Well, actually. They must speak both, I bet. Well, uh, okay. So there, there's a town in Minnesota called New Prague, spelled like Prague, but only the people who live in New Prague know that's how it's yep, pronounced yep. because my roommate in college sure it, was from there. I'm pretty sure it was supposed to be New Prague and then people were just like, no. Yeah. It, there, there's a whole thing. So like, I remember the first time I asked my roommate, like, oh, so what's it like in New Prague? Like, that sounds cool. Right. And she She's laughed. Like, she just gets this smile because she's had to explain the same thing over and over. It's New Prague. I, but they have a point, really... I would have just stopped correcting Here's people. the thing, though. I know this. And so now I sound savvy. Like, oh, you mean New Prague? Because that's how the locals say it. Right. It's like going to Barcelona and saying Barcelona. But they have a really strong Czech heritage yeah. and community say, yeah, there. They, they speak Czech. They have like Czech days or so, something. I don't know. But there's a lot of German. So she's born at Kinski Palace. Her parents were Lieutenant General Franz de Paula Joseph Graf Kinski von Wuzik de Tato. Bravo. Who good. had recently died right before she was born. Oh no. At the ripe old age of 75. Damn what? His his wife, Sophie Wilhelmine von Corner, was 50 years his junior. Shut the fuck up. Okay, so he was so 70. She was 25 years old. You're right. That's 20 years worse than mine was. Yeah. Oh my what is the point of pumping kids? Like you're just gonna die. Oh my god. Like, yep. she was signing up to be a single mother. Yep. So like, her, like on her yeah. way of the, like, on the way to Lamaze, they were checking out nursing homes or something, like right. care facilities. Exactly. Jesus like, oh, honey, Christ. You could go there. Did he even know where he was when right. he was having sex? Right. Yeah. So he died before Bertha was born, because he's old. Um, <laughs> but he was a member of the Czech House of Kinski via descent. So, like, he was... From a well-known family. Um, her mother be- did belong to nobility, but it was like an unknown lineage. And so she was of significantly lower status than her husband. Okay. Because of this mixed descent of like someone from a high status and someone from a low status, she was pretty much excluded from Austrian high society. Oh, that sucks. I was going to say, it's like you got an A dad and a C mom, like it averages out to a B kid. Because only those with an unblemished aristocratic pedigree going back to their great great grandparents were eligible to be presented at court. I'm doing the jerk off motion for everyone who can't see. Right. Which is everyone. She was (laughs) uh, additionally disadvantaged because not only was her mother lower born, her father was the third son Oh, so, so he he was so like he didn't like have any great estates or like really any of the family wealth. 
He was a spare plus one. Exactly. Like he wasn't even like just in case the air dies, we've got a backup. It's he's like, you're not even on deck. <laughs> right. So soon after um her birth, her mom uh, decided to move to I didn't even like how to pronounce this. So Bruno is what I'm gonna go with. It's B R N O. So okay. Bruno. Because that sounds right. It it's it sounds pronounceable. Right. So she moved in. She moved there. Her mother moved there with Bertha's guardian. So I'm assuming it's just because there was no other man. So I didn't look into like how this guardianship worked. Yeah, that's weird. I I I can I only imagine yeah. maybe the mother didn't have as many rights because she's a woman. Or so, yeah. I don't know. It sounds like there's so some weird shit. The guardian's going on. name was Landgrave Friedrich Michael Zufurstenberg Waitra. I don't think I ever mention him again. Okay. Because I would remember the name Landgrave. That's a great fucking name. Everyone start naming your kids Landgrave. Let's make that the new, you know, right. Aiden. <laughs> um, her brother, she did have an older brother. However, he was sent to military school soon after they moved. He was six at the time. Oh, my God. Um, and subsequently had little to no contact with the family. Okay. So he, she's just got a brother who's out there yeah. doing his own yep. thing. So in 1855, then her cousin and aunt came to join the family. I'm assuming their husband died, you know, and so like it was just like, hey, all the women can live here with these guardians. I don't know. Elvira. Were they guardians or were they like fuck boys? I have no idea. Because it, it, it sounds like guardian. she's collecting guardians. Yeah, right. Like, is that which is what we're calling it? Or are they no, boyfriends? I'm, like the sister. So there's more like there's like four women now and one guy oh okay okay so you're thinking of it like the, it's more like I a am. harem i'm thinking i'm thinking it's the mother and she's got like four dudes who are quote-unquote guardians no. okay so elvira and bertha were of similar age and elvira came from a house where her father was a private tutor so she had a lot of like intellectual interest and she taught a lot of that to bertha from literature to philosophy bertha also at this time was became very proficient in french italian and english so she was also trilingual i i feel like our ladies would have gotten along um and she basically had the supervision of a succession of tutors because like that's just how their life was and yeah. so she became also became an accomplished amateur pianist and singer singer well because there weren't really schools you just no. hire teachers for specific subjects well, it was, to it come was very in. common especially for women to learn music back then. yes yeah because they had to have some talent to entertain people. Yeah, you know, you you what what are you going to do when the husband's done talking? You got to entertain the guests, right? Make yourself useful. If you're not pumping out babies, you better be playing that piano. Exactly. Which is <laughs> So she was born in Prague, and then her mom moved to Brno, which is which is in the Czech Republic. And now Bertha's mother and her aunt consider themselves to be clairvoyant. And decided to go to Weisbaden in Germany. So she's third country. Weisbaden. Love it. Um, in the summer of 1856. It doesn't say that the kids went with, but I just kind of assume they did. But they went and they hoped to return with a fortune because they thought they were clairvoyant. Okay. Um, so they're going to go make it at yeah. Psychics. Yep. Love this, it. This is like a gambling place. What so, could go wrong? Yeah, right. Their losses were so heavy that they oh, were forced no. to move to Vienna. So oh, that shit. They're going back to Austria, <laughs> apparently. I love you say they were forced to move to Vienna. Hey, I'm like, that actually sounds lovely. It. <laughs> apparently, it wasn't back then. Oh, my God. During this trip, Bertha actually received a proposal from Pin- Prince Philip Zusayan Winterjesen Berleberg. 
Which like, I, I looked him up and I couldn't find Prince Philip specifically. I could in like there was a 2011 a Prince Philip was born. But basically like this is like a family that owns like a bunch of land. And I'm like, why wouldn't you marry your daughter to a prince? I mean, she was only 13 at the time. Well, maybe he was like a like a like the third prince. Pro- like yeah. he was the 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 right. spare so she, spare. She received this proposal um, and her mother declined due to her young age. She was only 13. Fair. Good on you, mom. Right. Way to make good decisions. She's like, I'm not marrying my 13-year-old off to this old right. dude who's going to die right before she gives birth and just cop out of all the parental responsibility. Yeah, exactly. I've been there. It sucks. Three years later, the aunt and mother try- decided to try again and go back to Weisbaden to try and win more money with their apparent clairvoyancy. I want to know how, um, that's, how that went. It was just as bad. Yep. And they... This time, instead of relocating to Vienna, they relocated to a small pro- pl- blah, 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 property in Kloisterberg. Kloisterberg. Yeah, and that's probably terribly mispronounced. It was it was a shithole, you guys. And that's that's in Austria. Okay, it's an Austrian state in Lower Austria. I didn't realize there was an upper and lower mm, Austria. Lower Austria is so sexy. Um, shortly after this, uh, Bertha began writing and actually published her first work, the novella. Aaron Dentraman in Monday, which Google Translate says Earth Dream in the Moon, which I feel like is not right. That sounds amazing, though. Earth Dream and the Moon? In the Moon. In the Moon. Earth, Earth Dream, Dream in, in the, the moon. moon. That actually sounds like an amazing shoujo manga. I know, right? I, I would read that. Yeah. Um, and so this appeared in the magazine called Die... How do you pronounce Like Dutch. Die Douche... Frau, which die Deutsch, Deutsch, yeah, die Deutsch Frau, which is the German woman. Okay, so it was I like a that. magazine. It's a women's magazine. Yep. We've had a few of those recently, right? Continuing the poor financial circumstances in her family um, led to Bertha being briefly engaged to a very wealthy man named Gustav Heinwald Geldern, who was thirty-one years her senior. Ew. Um, who she came to find unattractive and rejected. Because he was old. <laughs> I don't know. Because he I'm was unattractive. Sorry. I'm sorry. When you're a certain age, like old has a totally right. different meaning. Like I look at someone who's in their 30s. I'm like, they're not that old. Like they don't look I mean, old. We're almost 30. But shut up. But when I'm like 15, I'm like, oh, 30. It's so old. Because it's double your age. Let's see, 59. She's I don't know how old she was, but I'm just saying. 16. If they're, okay. So if there's enough of an age gap, like someone's not going to look that right. attractive. Because yep. it's like you're old though. Um, I was really sad because I couldn't find this because apparently in her memoirs, she actually records the disgusted response of this man's like attempt to kiss her, but I couldn't find it because you know I would have included it had I found it. Okay, quick story time. Uh, I was at a dance in high school and uh, a friend of mine tried to kiss me and I... The, none of this was thought out, yeah. but I instinctively backed away so far that I literally, like, my legs were bent underneath me and I fell on my back. Nice. And all my friends rushed over and they're like, what the fuck happened? And I didn't want to embarrass him. Right. So you're just like, oh, I, I tripped. I actually said, why did you try to headbutt me? Which I'm like, that's probably worse. He's like, I wasn't trying to headbutt you. I'm like, we'll talk about this later. It was awful it like i i was an idiot high schooler who instinctively like threw themselves on the ground to avoid a kiss and i didn't know how to handle it so it's okay i was i feel i was in eighth grade and it was like me the guy i was dating 
unsexy finger quotes. <laughs> um, and one and my friend and like the whole time she was like, you should kiss her. You should kiss her. You should kiss her. And so he kissed me and I wasn't like ready for it. And his lips were super chapped and it was a terrible, terrible kiss. And then he kissed me like later, not at her prompting. And that one was okay. But I was like, God damn it. You know, here's the thing. We all did that in middle school and high school where we were just trying to like trigger shit for our own amusement like trying to get our friends right. to kiss each other or like oh you should do it because i just kind of want to see what happens it's awful well, no, it's very don't much do like, it oh, you guys are dating you should kiss her you should kiss yeah. her it's, just like, it's like that's not your fucking business i okay it was a terrible kiss and i'm my like f- god damn it claire you weren't you ruined my first kiss okay so I claire was- if you're listening you ruined my first <laughs> kiss god I, damn it claire i very much doubt she's listening to. i podcast. really hope you're doing well but god damn it so since we're on this topic exactly what i mean since we're on this topic i was dating this guy in high school and we were at the like valentine's dance and this romantic song it was like i can be your hero baby was playing and we were slow dancing and i'm like this is where my first kiss happens i'm in this rocking dress i'm at the school dance it's very romantic this cute song is playing and he doesn't do anything and i was like do you want to kiss me like, like maybe he's, you know, respecting he my no? consent. He's like, well, not in front of everyone. And I was like, 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 like he was just like, uh, like embarrassed to kiss Oh, see, me? I thought he was maybe just shy. No. So spoiler alert, he was emotionally abusive and a prick. Oh, so guy, yeah. <laughs> speaking another, of, he's speaking another of one on my list of people to punch if I ever meet them. Yeah. And then so I was I was disappointed, but like I respected it. Well, I actually had my first kiss in his basement while we were watching Elf and it was I, I still I will not with, watch that movie because it was so disappointing. I had my first kiss with Justin. At Jim and Chris's house, because that's where he was living at the time. Carl and Cameo were there, because they were dating at the time. And we had gone on a double date, and we were watching The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. That's such a good movie! Yeah. God. That actually is a really good movie. Yeah, and I... So if... I had to rewatch it later. If Mm -hmm. anyone, you know, maybe a little younger who hasn't had their, like, first ever romantic kisses listening... Dude, seriously, you're not going to care. It's always going to be kind of a story, because it was your first... But your first kiss with the person you really love right. is going to be the important and one. And don't be pressured into it. Oh, like, absolutely yeah, like, not. I remember the kiss with, I think, Andy. Yeah, no, I know. I'm not even going to say I think his name was Andy. His name was Andy. I know his name. <laughs> um, and it was, yeah, it was bad. But yeah, like, I remember my first kiss with Justin. And I'm like, you know, yeah, it might not have been the most romantic moment. But it makes me smile. Like, still. Six years after marriage, which means we've been together like eight years. Yeah. You know, it still makes me smile. And I think of him when I like watch that movie and, you know, like it was a good situation. And I have the same thing with Jared. I still remember our first kiss. And I remember it very fondly because it was, was like was it in my house. It was in front of your house. <laughs> he was he was dropping me off after a date. And it was funny because we we had driven back from the cities where we had the date. It was a double date we went on. Where we went up to the cities and we had dinner at that like news themed restaurant mm-hmm. where the bar looked like a pirate ship and it was like with the netting and everything. But anyway, on the drive, that I was feel like-, like Justin wasn't with us for that. He I was. feel like it was me and someone else and you and Jared. No, it was Justin was 100% okay. there. But uh, we had spent the drive and we kind of chatted a bit because it was only our second date. Like, oh, yeah, you know, second date's like too early to kiss. And he drops me off on the and walks me up to the front step and just goes for it. And it was awesome. Anyway, 
back to my story yeah okay <laughs> enough of this like stroll down memory lane <sighs> and like kiss they don't history need to know this. that, that um, should be our spinoff podcast history also ooh. i just want to point it out there listeners if you have a great or even terrible like kiss story i want to hear it i will totally read it because kiss stories too. are the best your thing now yes um okay so after she rejected this man's advances um a few years later situation still wasn't going good and the family was spending the summer in Bad Homburg, which is <laughs> the greatest city name ever. Oh, my God. Like, like literally, Bad Homburg. Was it like Greenland and Iceland, where it's like, Greenland's actually icy and Iceland's actually green? Was it like Bad Homburg was actually good? I have no idea. <laughs> it was just a branding so. mistake. <laughs> um, so that, that's also in Germany. Just... Okay. reference we're kind of in that just like zone where it's like austria germany and kind of like um, east czechoslovakia yeah yeah kind of that that east european general so not only was this place named bad homburg it is it was also a fashionable gambling destination so you can guess why they were there to, to pull the clairvoyant shit. Yep. I am getting really disappointed during, in these women. <laughs> during this time, Bertha decided to do her own thing and she went on. Smart. Because this was like uh, where like the aristocracy would go to gamble. Like, so it's nicer people. Okay. And Bertha decided, you know, she made friends because she was there. So she befriended um, the Georgian aristocrat Ekaterine Dadiani, who's a woman. Okay. Just in case you can't tell. She's the princess of Mangrelia, which I had to <laughs> Google what Mangrelia was. What? It is a historic province in the western part of Georgia. Okay. Georgia the country. Right. Not the state. Just for <laughs> everyone out there. We're going we're to jump all the way to the United States here. So, and like, it was also like, a, like the, the Mangrelians are viewed as like a subset of the Georgian people. Okay. So, yeah. So she's a princess of Mangrelia, so it's like the, an area in Georgia. Man, that, I don't know anything yep. about geography, you guys. Uh, I, I had never heard of it before. Mangrelia. And I studied European geography at some that point. That is wild. Um, and she also, during this time, met Tsar Alexander II. Oh, shit. So she's rubbing elbows with some fancy people. Yeah. During this time, also, Elvira, who was her cousin, and Friedrich. Okay, I guess her guardian does get mentioned one more time. They okay. just mentioned him as Friedrich. Longgrave Friedrich. That was his <laughs> I name, still right? love Longgrave. that name, Longgrave. Yeah. So both Elvira and Friedrich died during this time oh, while sad. they were in Bad Homburg. Um, did they Did they dig Friedrich a long grave? I hope so. I hope he was really short and they had to right. dig like basically a, a square grave. hole. Yeah. Like, so that this was, is ironic. That was in 1866. And Bertha, who was now above the typical marrying age. She wasn't 13 anymore, you guys. <laughs> no, she was 23. Oh, so she was old as shit. Back then. Yeah. She was two years younger than when her mother had her with her 70-year-old exactly. father. Um, she was starting to feel increasingly constrained by her mother's eccentricity, like all this gambling and just the family's poor financial situation. So because she was around all these aristocrats, she decided she's like, okay, I'm going to seek a career as an opera singer. I'm not going to marry into money. I'm going to try and make my own. Okay. You know. Um, by not pretending to be psychic. Exactly. She spent her time taking extensive 
extensive, intensive lessons to be an opera singer. She would work her on her voice for over four hours a day. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine that. I can't imagine doing anything for four hours a right? day. Like, I mean, working, I mean, obviously. Work, but but yeah. that, that's like Even varied. then you take breaks and like you do different things. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm going to work on this project. I'm going to answer some emails. I'm like... I envisioned like it was like an hour of voice work and then a break and then an hour. I imagine I like working out for four hours a day because it is physically oh, it intensive. Is. You're, very, you're training yeah. your body to do And that's why I'm something. saying I wonder if it was like, you know, an hour or half an hour of singing and stuff. I mean, and then opera a break. singing is intense. It's hard. Yeah. Um, obviously, she wasn't in a good financial situation. So I'm sure you're like, wait, how is she taking these courses? Well, you're right. I am. Yeah. Kelly, how is she taking these courses? The, the first year, so 1867, she received tuition from Gilbert Duprez. I don't know who that guy is, but I would assume he's like a nobleman. A rich buddy. Um, And then in 1868, she received tuition from Pauline Varadat. Another rich buddy. Yes. So she's making connections to try to bankroll her exactly. education. Okay, fair. Um, however, she never went on to become... A professional opera singer, mainly oh, because she suffered from stage fright and one is unable to project her voice well during performances. Honey, Bertha, why did you I want know. to be an opera singer if you like, can't ooh. get up on a stage? Um, can, can I just stand behind the curtain and sing, though? No, you have to, like, actually be out there. Are you sure, though? Like, right. maybe I'm I'm trailblazing Somebody else can path. stand out there and I'll just sing from the background, but you have to pay me. It's straight up fucking Ashley Simpson. Someone's lip singing to her and she's in the back. I was um, Singing in the Rain. I've never seen that. Oh, yeah, we should watch it sometime. It's good. Okay. I, I know the song. <laughs> but yeah, like that's about that, it. That's part of the premise and singing of the singing in the rain. Okay. Um. So in, after after this project of hers didn't work out, <laughs> this um, little educational endeavor. Right. In 1872, she got engaged to Prince Adolf zu Zayan Wintergistein Hohenstein. So this is like this is. <laughs> This is like another subset of that same family from earlier when she was 13. So that one was Zion Wintengeist. Uh, God, let me scroll back up. Zion Wintengeist Berleberg. And the this ugly one, dude? No, the guy that tried to marry her when she was 13. Oh, oh, right. So right, that was right. Zion Wintengeist Berleberg. And this one is Zion Wintengeist Hohenstein. God damn. So they're like names. roughly related. Okay. Um, however, he went on to die at sea just a few months later while traveling to America to escape his debts. So, you know, match made in heaven. I was just about to be like, oh, you poor bastard. Then like, but then I was like, oh, you were kind of doing it for a shitty reason. <laughs> right. What is with her and just being surrounded by people in debt who like can't get their shit together? I don't know. She apparently is just like, you know, money, it's not a thing, yeah. but it should be. I love how that family is apparently determined to, like, nail her. <laughs> like, no, no, no. Right. Someone in our family is going to marry her. We don't know who, but <laughs> exactly. it's going to be one of the Weitengeists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in 1873, she went on to find an employment as a tutor because obviously this time she's getting older by the those days standards. And generally, yeah, if you're not married by that time, there's not a lot for you to do. She's so, a spinster. You know, it's probably more of like a maid or a governess. They said tutor, but I assume, you know, like yeah. sound of music, that type of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Tutor and companion to the four daughters of Carl von Sut Sutner. So you can kind of see where this is going. Okay. Um, The daughters were aged between 15 and 20. 
they lived in um, an area of Vienna for three seasons of the year and then spent the summer in Castle Harmonsdorf in Lower Austria the other season. That's something we need to bring back. This, like, like I mean, in that's Minis- what snowbirds do. I was going to say, in Minnesota, we have this idea of snowbirds, of people who typically go to Arizona. Or Florida. Florida, too, but... I feel the like, older you are, the more common it is you go to Florida. But I feel like every time I talk to someone from Minnesota, like Arizona is the promised land. Like yeah, that's where everyone wants heat. to go. And so in the winter, you live in Arizona. And then in the spring, you move back to Minnesota. And I'm like, I kind of want to bring that back. Like, I love the idea of summering somewhere right? or wintering uh, I somewhere. I do, too. I would, I would pick Arizona. <laughs> I, I probably would, too. Like, there, there are some pretty like cool cities there. if I'm summering there. or I'm wintering somewhere, it would be Arizona. I know someone who lives, I think it's Tucson, and it's a pretty, like, eclectic place. Yeah. Like, it, it's a pretty neat I've place. It seemed nice. Yeah. Um, so she had, a, she had a fairly affectionate relationship with her four young students. Like, they got along well. However, they nicknamed her Bulat, which means fatty. Oh, no! I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that just sounds right to me. Um, due to her size, she was a little bit bigger. What the um, fuck? However, it was a name <laughs> she would later adopt as a literary pseudonym in the form of B. Ulat. So B. Ulat. So F. Addy, basically? Well, no, she took it as a name. No, no, no I understand. So but B. If- dot, meaning like her first name is something else, like Beatrice. Oh, okay. Ulat. I, I thought that I thought that the name was Bulat with like a B. It's no, it Bulat? is. Oh, it, the the term fatty is pronounced Bulat, but this is I'm saying she took the name as like B period space Ulat. So she's saying like her first name begins with a B, but she's not you know like but like all together it still forms the same word fatty. Um, so it's, it's like if her missing name was- a few le- like the few names are different. Okay, but yeah, but I'm just saying like I'm because it's separated that way. I'm sure people aren't taking it as fatty okay because i'm like that's like if your name's francine and your nickname's fatty and you publish your works as f dot addy yeah like like that's how it's working in my mind i know but well i'm sure it sounds like she liked the kids so i'm sure she was just like yeah whatever i'm confident in myself yes she soon fell in love with the girl's older brother baron arthur gundekar von Von Suttner. Oh, I thought she was um, going to go for daddy. Who was seven years her junior. Okay. They were engaged, but I'm unable to marry due to his parents' disapproval, probably because she's older. Uh, That, I also kind of get, like, you don't want it's your also, kid to marry the nanny. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> he would be marrying below him, even though she was kind of, like, she had a weird background. But anyways, uh, in 1876, um, with the encouragement of her employers, because I'm sure they're like, leave so we can marry our son off to someone else. Um, you fat temptress. <laughs> she answered a newspaper advertisement, which led her to briefly become secretary and housekeeper for Alfred Noble. Why is that name so familiar? Oh, is he, he the, the Nobel the, yeah, Peace Prize? Yeah, he donated a shit ton of money to create oh, five shit. Nobel Peace Prizes. He's that Nobel. Yes. this Yes, it okay. is the Nobel. So All she right. went to... Not not from Barnes and Noble. I, no, um, <laughs> she. I don't know what kind of newspaper ad this was, but yeah. So she went to work for him briefly as a secretary and housekeeper. She was only there for a few weeks, um, but her and um, Noble developed like a, a pretty decent friendship, and they would actually like continue to be friends throughout the years. Some people say that maybe he made some romantic overtures for her, but there, you know, there's no real 
it's it's know. that weird territory because there are definitely people who believe men and women are unable to be friends, which is right. to- totally not true. But at the same time, a lot of this stuff is covert. So it's like, yeah, if they were like, you know, maybe they were just hiding their relationship. Right. We don't really know. However, as far as we know, she remained committed to Arthur and actually returned shortly to Vienna to marry him in secrecy in the Church of St. Agid in Gumpendorf. Gumpendorf. Goddamn. Everyone, yep. everyone from that region of Europe is going to hate me because I'm just laughing at the names. But um, come on, you guys. Maybe some of these places don't exist anymore. I don't know. Fun. Um, because the names. And they're right. like, we got to rebrand here. The, the newlywed couple then eloped to Mingrelia in Georgia okay. where, you know, she had that friend, the princess. So this is near the Black Sea and the Russian Empire. So it's kind of over if you don't know where Georgia is. In that general direction. Yeah. Thank you for that because I'm trying to envision a map and I'm like, I know I'm wrong. <laughs> She kind of hoped to use the connection to the... Apparently, at this time, they were the former ruling house of Didiani. But during their arrival, they were entertained by Prince Nico, who was the prince at the time. And the the couple settled there, and they found work teaching languages and music to the children of the local aristocracy. So, like, they they started doing kind of well. Um, They did still experience hardship because despite their social connections, they were living in a very simple... Three three roomed wooden house, like definitely probably not what her husband is used to. Also, even by today's standards, if your house has only three rooms, like that's small, right? It's not like three bedrooms. Yeah, it's no, three it's, rooms exactly. So, so there's yeah. the kitchen slash living room, a toilet, and maybe it actually sounds like my suit, my former studio yeah. apartment, except yep. that was technically one room, <laughs> and two rooms. Right? Yeah, everything, and then the bathroom exactly. Their situation, no, because you had a bedroom too. Well, it wasn't, it was like kind of sectioned off, but it didn't have a door or anything. And so y- your apartment with a door. It was It was basically because it was behind the yep, closet yep. that was in the I entranceway. Remember. Yeah. Um, so our, uh, their situation worsened it, uh, at the outbreak of the Russo-Turkish War in 1877. And although Arthur did go on to become a reporter of the conflict for the New Free Press. Oh, that's really cool. Um, And Bertha also started writing frequently for the Austrian press during this period. You know, that wars make life harder on everyone. Yeah. You know, and in the aftermath of that, because he was covering the war, Arthur tried to uh, set up a timber business because, you know... Gotta make Why money. Not? Yeah. Um, trees are like, just yeah. however, trees are just growing out of the ground, you yeah, guys. Right. <laughs> it was very unsuccessful. Bummer. And so because they were in poverty, like this really kind of restricted what they could do in high society. And they both had problems because they were older. They never became fluent speakers of Mingrelian or Georgian. So, you know, they kind of struggled a bit. Um, and so to support themselves, they both started writing. Arthur's writing was actually very influenced by Georgian culture and like the local themes that were going on, whereas Bertha's writing was kind of more everyone. Like it was and it was it wasn't really affected by the culture they were currently living in. It was like this amalgamation of everywhere she had lived and everyone right. she had kind of been around. In August of 1882, uh Bertha's friend Ecterine Dadiani, the the princess prin- the former princess had died Aww. and so the couple decided to move to tbilisi i think i'm actually pronouncing that one right because it's t-b-i-l-i-s-e i'm pretty sure it's tbilisi it's actually pronounced france no and that's, that's the, actually <laughs> the capital of georgia okay 
Um, here, Arthur took whatever work he could. He did some accounting, construction, wallpaper design. He kind of just bounced around to kind of whatever would make this him money This sounds so time. modern, you know, because oh, right. you have a couple who's trying to make it and you have one who's just taking jobs wherever they can. Right. And during this time, Bertha did a lot of writing. She became a correspondent of Michael George Conrad. I'm assuming that name means someone to some, something to someone. Um, and eventually she would go on to contribute an article to the 1885 edition of his publication, Die Gieselschaft, which I thought I lo- looked up, but apparently I didn't look up what that means. Um, the piece she wrote was entitled Truth and Lies, and it is a strong piece in favor of the naturalism um, promoted by Emile Zola. Cool. I mean, it's no earth dream in the moon. But... Right. I know. <laughs> Truth and Lies, very sexy. Um, as she continued writing, she kind of like her work became pretty political, and her first significant political work was called Inventarium Einer Seal or Inventory of the Soul. Ooh, um, it These was published. Are so I intense. know, right? It was published in Leipzig, which I assume is a magazine, in 1883. In this work, she talks about being pro disarmament, which is a very progressive stance for the 1880s. Yeah. Um, she argued the inevi- for the inevitability of world peace due to technological advancement. Oh, Bertha. If oh, you honey. Knew. Like, are we just not there yet? Like, do we need to uh, advance even more? Um, <laughs> but it's interesting because it was a possibility that her and Alfred Nobel would talk about a lot. Cool. Like, so, yeah, that apparently, you know, it would be war would be increasingly deterred the more powerful our weapons got. And that kind of happened. I was going to say, like, with it's nuclear kind of weapons. in the nuclear standoff that the globe is currently in. Like, so, I know uh, a lot like, of places uh, are uh, working on call denuclearization. Us peace, but... but- we're, I guess we're a kind tentative of tentative standoff. Right? <laughs> it's just everybody looking at each other across the board like, are you going to push your button? Do I push well, my and, button? And, and uh, th- there are places where it's like if one person launches, automatically well, yeah. shit goes it, off. Yeah, like you good. don't even have to think about it. So right. it's, it's that whole mutually assured destruction angle, which doesn't sound great. But I guess if we're not killing each other. I just, right. Exactly. I'm not even going to get into it. In 1884, Bertha's mother died, leaving the couple with further debts because, of course, she had debts. Yeah, because she's trying to make it as a fake psychic all over the goddamn place. And sucking at it. Right. During this time, Arthur befriended the Georgian journalist to, in Tbilisi, M. Literally, that's all they said. Just M. The letter, the letter M. M. <laughs> the couple agreed to collaborate with him on a translation of, of a Georgian epic known as The Night in the Panther Skin. So what was going to happen is Bertha was going to help M to translate the Georgian to French, and then Arthur was going to translate the French to German. Okay. I, I think it, I I think I'm on board it with that didn't line. Go well. Oh no. When does shit go well? I feel like this. The it's just like all these attempts to right. do something, and it. This sounds right. too much like my life. Like I'm really trying. No. So it didn't really say what happened. I'm assuming it like it didn't say what happened with the book. It says like it talks about what happened with them and M, but like it doesn't talk about the book. I assume it didn't go well. Okay. Um. During this time, Arthur also pr- published several articles. And then M failed to make the expected payment, and then things started happening. There was something known as the Bulgarian crisis, which I don't know what that is because I'm an American. And... I'm just going to assume it was bad. Yeah. And because of this, the couple felt increasingly unsafe in Georgia. So they, um, because I guess people were becoming more hostile toward Austrians due to Russian influence. Okay. So they finally decided to reconcile with Arthur's family. 
you know, who obviously they had eloped, so they kind of like, and so they were they kind of pissed off exactly. The family. So they reconciled so they could go back to Austria. Hey, I know you're mad, but are you mad enough to let me die? If not, let me come right, home. <laughs> exactly. So basically, them and M had a disagreement. He didn't pay them, and now they're moving back to Austria. Oh, M, you bitch! How dare you use my nickname for evil? Right. During all of this, Bertha found refuge in her marriage to Arthur. This is what she said about it. Quote, the third field of my feelings and moods lay within our married happiness. And this was my peculiar, peculiarly, 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 peculiar. Oh, my God. I'm doing it, too. It's P-E-C-U-L-I-A-R-L-Y. Peculiarly. Peculiarly. Peculiar. Okay, I'm just gonna skip that word. This is going to be 20 minutes of in, us saying this. Yeah, oh I'm gonna my skip God, the word, guys. In this was my whatever inalienable home. My weird. <laughs> my refuge for all possible conditions of life. And so the leaves of my diary are full not only of political domestic records of all kinds, but also the, of memoranda of our gay little jokes, our confidential enjoyable walks, our uplifting reading, our hours of music together, and our evening games of chess. To us personally, nothing could happen. We had each other, and that was everything. Oh, so yeah. it's like no matter what happens, we have the memories. We'll always have right? Paris. So they were really good. For each other. Oh, um, I'm, I'm glad. After their return to each other, Bertha continued her journalism and concentrated on the peace and war issues that were going on in the world. Um, she would often correspond with the, f- the French philosopher Ernest Renan and was influenced by other um, by the International Arbitration and Peace Association, who was, which was founded by Hods- Hodgson Pratt. So she's getting really into war and peace. Yeah. Not the book. <laughs> um, I'm sure she read it. In... When was War and Peace even written? Oh, don't even. It's too late. Kelly's looking it up. She must know. Her thirst for knowledge is insatiable. 1867. So yeah, it would have been out at this time. Okay. Um, Because it's 1889 now, and she was starting to become a leading figure in the peace movement. Um, What really propelled her to be in the forefront was a novel she wrote called Die, Wa- Die Waffen Nieder, or Lay Down Your Arms, Aww. with an exclamation point. Lay down your arms. It's a command. Um, so yeah, like this really propelled her to the front of the Austrian peace movement. It is a novel whose heroine suffers all the horrors of war. The war and the wars that she wrote about were the the wars of the day. Like, you know, she made it relatable and she did very careful research on the wars. So that, you know, she could be like, this is the experience people were having, are having right now. So you can't be like, well, this is just fiction. Well, actually, it's deeply rooted in reality. Our reality. The effect of this um, article, which was published late in 1889, was consequently so real and the implied indictment of militarism was so telling that the impact that it made on the reading public was tremendous. The book was published in 37 editions and translated into 12 languages. Holy shit. So because there is no better place in this story, I'm going to just briefly talk about her writing in general. Okay. And I promise there is no other place to put this. So at this point, she was a career writer. So she often had to write novels and novellas that she did not necessarily believe in or want to write to support herself. She did want to write Lay Down Your Arms, though. So it's like she's writing these really provocative pieces, but she's also tr- writing trashy romance on the yeah, side to I make envision. money. Um, 
But even in the novels that she didn't like, you can kind of see her political ideals kind of like shining through a little, you know, like the romantic heroes would fall in love upon realizing that they were fighting for the same ideals, which was usually like peace and tolerance. She also originally to hopefully get better financial success, she started using a male pseudonym like she started using a male pseudonym and then transferred to not to fatty. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe she made fatty sound like a male was, pseudonym. was fatty yeah. the male pseudonym. That's what we're gonna go with. <laughs> um in addition she would also work as a journalist quite often to help get her message out there and promote her own books you know why not yeah um tolstoy and others have actually since agreed that there is a strong similarity between bertha and harriet beecher stowe shit the quote from tolstoy is quote well it says so this is what it says quote Neither, or yeah, neither were simply writers of popular entertainment nor authors of ten, tendentious propaganda. They used entertainment for idealic, idealistic purposes. So basically, they used entertainment to get their ideas across. Well, it's kind of like you watch a Disney movie for entertainment, but it always has a deeper message. Exactly. Yeah. For Bertha, these these purposes were peace and acceptance of all individuals and all people. She also would start some, like, besides that, she would get into a little bit of religion and gender. So with religion, she actually had a disdain for, like, the pomp and circumstance around a lot of religious practices. Um, And in a scene in Lay Down Your Arms, she actually highlighted the odd theatrical of some religious practices. In one scene, there's an emperor and empress who are washing the feet of normal citizens to show how they are as humble as Jesus Christ. Yeah. However... They invite everyone to come and witness this show of humility. And look they, how awesome exactly. we are, guys. We're like Jesus. Everyone look how like we're like yeah. Jesus. And they enter the hall in a very dramatic fashion. You know, so the protagonist of the novel marks that this was indeed a sham washing. You know what? I totally get that. Right. And I actually agree with that because I feel like... Um, there, there are elements to organize religion that are more performative oh, yeah. than effective. It's kind of like, no, I went to church, so I'm a good person. Well, if you didn't enact those beliefs of kindness and tolerance right. when you left the church, exactly. you're n- kind of not. So that that's actually really interesting to hear her yeah. making those comments so long yeah. ago. Well, in another comment she would make, particularly about religion was that the idea that war is righteously for God and leaders would often use religion as a pretext for war. Oh my God. Um, She criticized this obviously because this means that the state placed itself as important an entity of God rather than the individual, thereby making dying in battle more glorious than other forms of death or even surviving the war. Right. It was more glorious to die in battle than it was to survive. Jesus. I mean, you see that tactic in war all the time. You're dying for this bigger purpose, uh, whether it's the Crusades or even uh, the Japanese in World War II, because they're dying for they're happy to die because it's It's, for the emperor. It's for the greatness. It's for this like holy or it's oh, my God. Right. Um, And not only does this cause many issues in war itself, but this type of religious thinking also leads to segregation and fighting based on religious differences, which both Bertha and her husband don't agree with. At one point, Bertha actually said, religion was neighborly love, not neighborly hatred. 
any kind of hatred against other nations or against other creeds detracted from the humanness of humanity. It's almost like everyone skipped over that section in the Bible where right. Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right, exactly. <laughs> so now on to the gender aspect of, of her writing. So she's often considered a leader in the the women's liberation movement, particularly because of Lay Down Your Arms, because it's a heroine. And in the book, the heroine Martha often clashes with her father because she doesn't want her son to play with toy soldiers and be boxed into having these masculine ideas, particularly when it comes to war. Let him play with Barbies! Right. Martha's, oh, shit! Martha's father does not like that and tries very hard to put Martha back into her place as a woman by suggesting that the son um, doesn't need approval for, from a woman. And she he also is like, you know, you need to get married or married again because she had been married and her, right. her husband died in the war, I think. Um, you know, and so her dad was like, well, you should get married again because, you know, you're a woman and you shouldn't be alone. It's crazy how relevant everything you just said right. is. Well, what was interesting about this is Bertha was not only saying that like women are equal to men because she did believe that, but she thought she was able to like talk about how sexism affects both men and women. Like oh she my didn't God, only focus you. on women. She actually like so she she did Martha and trying you know her, her dad was trying to put her back in like the stereotypical like this is what it means the to lady be a box. woman. But there's a character named Tilling who is also being forced to play like a stereotypical male role. And she talks about how he is affected by that. The character actually says in the novel, quote, we men have to repress the instinct of self-preservation. Soldiers have also to repress the compassion, the sympathy for the gigantic trouble, which invades both friend and foe for next to cowardice. What is most disgraceful to all of us is sentimentality. All that is emotion. That is because we're still talking about yeah, that. How, me- how men and how are, like taught to not have emotions, which is bullshit. Yeah. And honestly, sexism, it doesn't. Ju- you're right. It doesn't just hurt women. It hurts men and it breeds things like toxic mm-hmm. masculinity and toxic femininity because mm-hmm. that's 100 percent a thing. And it basically because anything that's telling you if you don't fit within these specific parameters, you're not. Yeah you right like you don't deserve to you're not a woman or you're not really exactly. a man is toxic and harmful to everyone it's because terrible. humans are this wide beautiful rainbow of variations yeah. and characteristics and you can't put us in lady well, and yeah, bro boxes. I, just, I love that yeah she was on like both sides she's like guys yeah come on because again feminism isn't about female supremacy it's about gender equality exactly and all right choice back to peace because that fit nowhere else i love peace uh, so from this time on, she became a very active leader in the peace movement. She devoted a lot a lot of time, energy, and like life to writing about peace. She would go to peace meetings, she would go to international like congresses, she would help establish groups, she would recruit members, she would lecture, she would write to people all over the world to promote different peace projects. She witnessed the foundation of the Interparliamentary Unit, Union, not Unit, and she called for the establishment of the Austrian Gesellschaft der, Frieden, der Friedensfront, which is the Society of Friends of Peace. Love it. Um, which is a pacifist organization um, that came to be in 1891. So she was a pacifist. 
Just in case you haven't gotten that yet. Uh, you know, I wasn't picking up on those vibes. I was kind of right. thinking she was a warmonger. Mm, I can see that. Yeah. Um, Bertha also became chairwoman and the founder of the German Peace Society a year after um, she was able to help, you know, found the Society of Friends of Peace. And she became internationally known as the editor of the international pacif- pacifist journal, Die Waffen Nieder, which was named after her book. That's amazing. Um, in 1897, she presented Emperor Franz Joseph I of Austria with a list of signatures ur- urging the establishment of an international court of justice. She took part in the first Hog Hog Convention in 1899. I didn't actually look that up, but I vaguely know it. I think it's like a giant peace convention. Is it the the Hague? Maybe, maybe that's H A U G or H A U G E. I think it's Hague. It's the Hague Convention. Yeah. Yeah, Which it has, just it shows has how we are mispronouncing everything all the time. I, no, I actually know what it is. It has to do with war and war crimes. Okay. That's why I know it, because if you, when you get into Nazi stuff, they talk about it, like how people were sentenced. Yeah. Anyways, so she took part in the first one, and she actually took part in it with thanks to uh, Theodore Hurls, um, who paid for her trip, and then she agreed to write about it for a newspaper. So yeah, that was nice. Um, in 1902, unfortunately, her, her husband, Arthur, died. Oh. Um, she sold the castle they lived in um, and moved back to Vienna. However, she was very determined to carry on the work that she had been so committed to and that they had often done together. Um, and he, as he was dying, he actually, like, told her and asked her to continue doing that. That's You know, sweet. I think it was, you know, kind of like a, this is your life. This is what you love doing. Don't just stop doing it because I'm not around. You Okay. Oh, I'm looking up dates to put this more into context for me because we're getting into the early 1900s. And I'm like, oh, I'll Man, tell you when this... World War One starts. I was like, there's all this talk of peace. And I feel like there's this, you know, elephant in the room. Oh, yeah, looming. It's coming. <laughs> Don't worry, it's coming. So she kind of kept doing what she wanted to, but she also kind of like went into semi-retirement. She really only left her house to go on peace missions. However, those peace missions often included like sp- very rigorous speaking tours. Right. You know. And then she would also continue to write, but only for the cause of peace. Like, she didn't write she stuff was, she didn't want to anymore. She was doing her own thing. Right. In 1904, she addressed the International Congress of Women in Berlin and for seven months traveled the United States attending Universal Peace Conferences in Boston. And she actually went on to meet President Theodore Roosevelt. Holy shit. Yeah. So she's she's rubbing elbows with some pretty fa- fancy people. I want to see that picture. Though her personal contact with Alfred Nobel had been quite brief, she had been corresponding with him since she met him until his death in 1896. Um, And it is believed that she is the major influence that made him decide to include a peace prize among the other prizes in his will. Oh, that's amazing. In fact, he said at some point, To Bertha, quote, Inform me, convince me, and then I will do something great for the movement. Aww. So that's what she had, he said to her. She's like, um, I will. <laughs> she did go on to get awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in December of 1905. She was the first woman to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and the presentation took place in April. So here's my section on Nobel Prize facts, because I just wanted to include this, because we've talked about other women yep. that have won. Okay, so there's there's five original prizes that Alfred Nobel put in his will to do. So there's physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, and peace. Then um, a bank in, I don't remember what country now. I think it's one of the Scandinavian countries. 
It's called the Sergej Rizbank Prize in Economic Sciences in Memory of Alfred Nobel. So basically, this bank was like, okay, we'll make another one. So there's technically like six prizes. Okay, so there are technically only five of them are Nobel prizes. Right. So this is very quick facts. I know this episode's getting really long. So three women have won the Nobel Physics Prize, the first being Marie Curie in 1903. Uh, Five women have won chemistry, which was also Marie Curie in 1911. Damn. 12 people, 12 women have won the medicine Nobel Prize. Uh, and this is one we've covered. Gerda Corey was the first yeah. woman, and that was in 1947. 15 women have won the Literature Prize, and that's Selma Lagerlof, who you covered yeah. during our I Pride covered Gerda Corey, too. Yeah. Um, and that was in 1909. 17 women have won the Nobel Peace Prize, Bertha von Suttner being the first woman. Nice. In 1905. And only two women have won the Economic Sciences Award. Um, The first one being Eleanor Ostrom in 2009. And I do not know who that is. And actually, coming in October, they are announcing this year's winners. winners. Um, The first one, the first, it's interesting because they all get announced on a different day. And it's all days of the week. So the the first five are announced the the fifth through the ninth. And then the next, the Economic Prize is announced the next Monday. Okay. All right, I got a few more, no- few more Nobel Prize facts for you, just because I found it interesting. I went down a really long Nobel. I bet there's a ton. Like, it was really interesting, and I'm like, okay, I can't include all of this, but I have to include some of it. So, total, over the years, there have been 597 Nobel Prize awarded. Total. Wow. 54 Nobel Prizes to 53 women who have changed the world. Marie- Wait. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Out of 500, only 53 have been awarded to women? 54 have been awarded to 53 women because Marie Curie got two. Oh, okay. Marie Curie was the first woman to be awarded one, followed by Bertha von Suttner. As of 2019, the Nobel Prize has been awarded to women 54 times. Marie Curie was awarded it twice. In 2009, that was the year the most women were awarded in a single year when five women were awarded in one year. Wow. Okay, that's all my Nobel Prize facts. Now, I could know. literally do like a side episode just on the Nobel Prize. In 1907, Bertha attended the second Hague Peace Conference. So the first one was a a, a com- like the first one was just called the Hague Conference. This one's the Hague Peace Conference. They added a name. Branding. Um, this time it mainly pertained to the law of war, so it was a little different this time. Um, and around this time, um, she also met Anna Bernhard Eckstein, who was the German champion of world peace. So they were able to like talk nice and of course this is all in the run-up to world war one Bertha at this time continued to campaign against international armament obviously also during this time she became an advisory member of the carnegie peace foundation um her last major effort came in 1912 when she was almost 70 Jesus and did a lecture tour in her second lecture tour in the united states after she attended the international peace conference which was in boston that year well actually it was in it was, it was in Boston, and then she did a speaking tour. Okay. In August of 1913, already starting to be affected by her illness. Because she's old? Well, she's also sick. I'll get into that. Oh, okay. The Marinus spoke at um, the International Peace Conference at the, the, the Hague, Hague, whatever. Sorry. Hague. That's what you said, I think right? it's the Hague. Hague. I think it is, too. That's how I've heard it. I don't know if that's how everyone pronounces um, it, but I've always heard it Hague. I agree. It's the Hague Peace Conference. I don't want you're to right. say the Hague no, Peace you're right. Conference. The Hague Peace Conference, where she was greatly honored as the Generalissimo, the Generalissimo 
of the peace movement. Generalissimo! That's going to be the episode title. Generalissimo of the peace movement. Right. I know. That's why I had to include it. The PM. In May 1914, she was still interested in the peace movement, obviously, and she was taking preparations, helping people to um, prepare for the 21st Peace Congress. So she's helping people. It was supposed to be in Vienna in September of 1914. Um, However, the conference never took place. She died of stomach cancer. So she was sick. Oh, no. Suspected stomach cancer. They know she was sick, but, you know, back then, I'm sure it was hard to tell exactly what kind of cancer it was. Yeah. Um, in Ju- On June 21st in 1914. Shut up. Seven days later, the heir to her nation's throne, Franz Ferdinand, was killed, triggering World War One. Shut the fuck up. Every so I looked up when I know, he was, I was assassinated. Like, yep. You knew I was doing that, and so every time you're mentioning dates, I'm like counting down. And you, oh yep. my god! I here's the thing, I'm almost glad. I know I kind of am too. Can you imagine? She's working spending all the majority of your then, life to promote peace, yeah. and then World War One starts, and there's no concept for war on this scale. No, it wasn't like World War Two, where it's like, well, we've done this before. It's different, but we've done it before. No, this, you know, it was known like, as the Great is, War, the war to end all wars. Like this is people. Th- this was the end of the world. Yeah, this it was, was bad. how we were it going was out. Real bad. Oh my god, that poor I know. woman. So legacy. Oh, she's rolling over I in know, her grave right? like you bastards. Her pacifism was was. N- a uh, conceiving of peace as a natural state impaired by the human deviations of war and militarism. So she's like, you know, naturally we should be peaceful. Oh, um, as a result, she often argued that a right to peace could be demanded under international law and was necessary in the context of Dar- Darwinian evolution. She was a respected journalist with one historian describing her as, quote, a most perceptive and adept political commentator. Although she was not financially successful during her lifetime, her work has remained influential for those involved in the peace movement. She's been commemorated in several ways over the years. Here's just a brief bullet list of ones that I like. I like our positive bullet lists. She was the main, she was selected as the main motif for a high value collector's coin known as the 2008 Europe Taller. It featured several important people in the history of Europe, um, including Martin Luther Antonio Vivaldi and James Watt. I know two of the three. I know. Vivaldi. I don't know who Antonio is. V- Vivaldi, the isn't he the composer? Is he? Yeah. You were more into music than I was, I... so that's why she's depicted on Germany's 2005 10 euro coin. Yeah, he is the musical composer. She is depicted on the Austrian two euro coin and was also pictured on the old Austrian $1,000 shilling banknote. So she's not on it anymore, but she was. That's cool. Um, she was commemorated in 1965 on an Austrian postage stamp. And yes! In t- and in 2005 on a German postage stamp. So was, she has two. I was just going to ask, like, she's got to have some stamps. Right. She was on money. She's got to have some stamps. And then uh, on December 10th, 2019, Google celebrated her with a Google Doodle. When? December 10th. 2019? 19. Okay, cool. I want to... What? How do you spell her name? B-E-R-T-H-A. Vaughn. Vaughn. Sutton. Sut- I see it. S-U-T-T-N-E-R. I want to look up her Google Doodle. We should wrap up the show. Okay. This is a long one. We'll, we'll post it or something. Oh, it's cute. She's so peaceful. Right. Anyway. 
I'm thankful for my husband. We already went over this. Oh, I, I didn't know if you had any more on Bertha. <laughs> oh, no, that's it. That was it. Okay. Man, damn Bertha. Okay, so you're thankful for your husband. Yep. What are you yep. thankful for? Um, I'm thankful for the lip gloss you gifted me before we started recording. Yay. We did a, we did like a virtual Mary Kay sample test thing uh, towards the beginning of quarantine, and we each got a sample of lip gloss, and we all just happened to look really good in the shade that we were we were given and so kelly bought me my shade and you bought your sister hers right yes i did so that's very I haven't sweet given it to her yet, though. and i'm thankful for your generosity Yay. and i love you so in case you're wondering why they picked december 10th for bertha von suttner's google doodle that's because that was the day she was awarded the Nobel peace prize oh cool i knew you weren't done <laughs> yeah. i sensed it all right. Well, thank you so much for every to everyone for joining us for this very long and really intense episode. But a good uh, one. It was a good one. Please like us on Facebook, whining about herstory, Instagram at WAHpod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. We have a website, whiningaboutherstory.com, and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you. S- stories, women, others say their names. Your first kisses or other awkward kisses. I want those kiss stories, guys. Please send them to me. I will read them on air. I will do voices. I will do whatever you want. We should make it like a a Twitter or not a Twitter, um, a Patreon thing. Yes. That'll be our thing. Oh, love it. Also, please rate us five stars wherever you listen. It really helps other people find us. We've actually noticed a huge spike in downloads lately. So thank you. So thank you so much. And we do have a Patreon if you want to support us. Um, you can support us for as little as $1 and keep the wine flowing. Keep it in my mouth. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye. That was beautiful.